Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and today we're joined by Eric Long, who was highly recommended by a previous guest, the wonderful Tanya LeBuick, who recommended or requested that Eric uh, come here on this podcast and Eric, you very uh, cheerfully accepted that request. And I'm so grateful for you for doing that. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today, Eric. So thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm so good. Thanks for having me on. And I love that Tanya suggested and recommended because she was uh, an amazing part of my experience at Salt Lake for sure. So happy to be here. Oh, excellent. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, before we start talking about Salt Lake? Why don't we talk about present day where are you joining us from and what are you working on? Sure. Um, I'm actually at my house in, in Santa Clarita, California, about 20 miles north of L.A. Uh, just moved up here, um, bought a house during, you know, during COVID, as you do. Um, and uh, I currently work for the Academy of Country Music. Um, and for those familiar in the country space, we just had our uh, award show last week. Um, and obviously with all these new protocols and, and guidelines and, and stuff in place, uh, it was very different and very challenging. Um, but our team actually rose to the challenge and were able to put on a live event. Uh, I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of us for the first time in, you know, in six months, it was very different. It felt very different, but, uh, it was, um, successful. And in many ways, it was successful, not just the health and safety part of it, but also, um, you know, the reaction from the uh, talent, the managers, the industry, very, very happy. And that's what I, I think our whole team was hoping for uh, with the ACM awards to really um, be safe and healthy um, and to put on some spectacular country music. So, yeah. Well, as a fellow individual here in this crazy industry that we're in, Having not been involved in a live event since COVID started, why don't you tell me, I'm just out of curiosity here, why don't you tell me a little bit about this, uh, what were some of those unique things, creative solutions that you found to overcome some of the challenges that are presented by COVID and deliver a successful event? Sure. We partnered with two organizations, one called CTEH, which um, is an industrial hygienist um, that worked on that has worked on many uh, pandemics and uh, issues um, globally in the past, as well as I don't know the name. Oh, uh, uh, Prudential Risk, which was our safety consultant, and what they did was they provided a whole different layer or perspective of the normal plans we would put in place. And just as one example, um, in at the Grand Old Opry House, there's many entrances, entrances and exits, but we had to create. Uh, 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 an entrance and exit plan approved by this health consultant and safety consultant that literally had one entrance in and one exit out. So pipe and drape, signage, security, and that was all of this on top of the other layers of daily COVID testing. Uh, the depending on where you were, what zone you were in, you had a mask and a shield. Some had to wear gloves. So each of the layers, it really depended on on who you, how much personal contact you had with the talent 
with other staff members. Um, and it was really interesting to dive into that. And, and, and as you mentioned, we haven't had live events in so long. I, as the default, I think, ended up taking on more of the health and safety um, because we also produce five, between five and 10 other events surrounding the award show, which none of which happened, right? So I was, I had some extra time. Um, we did produce um, a, a radio row, radio remotes, where um, talent come and talk to all the radio stations, but we did that all virtually. So, and it was the first of its kind too. And, and I, I know that we didn't do it perfectly, right? But it was an amazing, amazing thing. And the industry was so excited about it. We also did a virtual press room where as the artist won their uh, trophy, they walked off the stage into a room with literally only one other human being in there with a huge screen with all of the press, basically, basically a unbelievably huge zoom call, but they could interact with each of the artists. And that was unprecedented too. So there's, there's so many stories like that, that I could just keep going on and on. But the biggest, the biggest, um, the biggest impact were the COVID tests that you had to do daily um, and, and if you didn't get cleared and we had some people not get cleared, uh, we were very, very lucky that no one, um, I can't use the, uh, I can't use certain words, but uh, certain people were not cleared, but with research and we didn't, we did contact tracing and everyone was safe and healthy, which was an unbelievable accomplishment, you know, to do this with hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, on site um, trying to manage that. We've got to find ways to build trust in the participants and in the, the viewership or the spectators and in the workforce that delivers these events that they can actually be held successfully in this crazy new environment that we're in. So I appreciate you and your team uh, actually pulling one off and maybe uh, showing the rest of us the way on how we can uh, move this a little bit forward. It's really important what you just said. It really is. We need to provide faith in the system. Like people need to trust that, that they're going to be safe. And that's why we went above and beyond like we had the unions and the guilds and, and they had really high expectations and we went above those because we want to be sure that we're keeping everyone safe and healthy. And that was, that was an unbelievable feeling too. When you get the check mark from the unions and the guilds and the okay that, that they feel safe and, and from the artists, like I told someone, I'm going to put a whole stream of memes together of all the artists saying, thank you for keeping us safe and healthy because that for us was an accomplishment you know that they felt safe they felt taken care of same thing with the production crew but their production crew was terrified like it's their first their first gig in six months they're like and they're wearing masks and it's all very different so yeah it was an unbelievable accomplishment it for sure was all right thank you for indulging my curiosity but i do have one more question before we get into salt lake so where does it go from here you know so you've you've had this event sounds successful by pretty much uh, any measure uh, so what happens next? That's funny. You should say that. Um, we are literally in meetings right now. I, I think if you, I think when you look at where, where things are going, um, 
it is it is clear to a lot of people that we won't be back in live events um, probably till the spring. Um, and that's at the earliest, right? And our event right now, it's already been announced, scheduled for April 18th of 2021. So we're now back to the drawing board. And, and, we're, and typically we've been in Las Vegas and people expect that. Um, but what, what does that look like now? Like we're going back and having to figure that out again of in April, what would that look like? Because if you, if anyone saw the awards, we didn't have an audience. And, and that was to be safe because Nashville actually opened up and you could have, I think it was, I think it was 25%, but we just didn't feel safe with that. So that's something else we're looking at too, for April of next year, for next year's award show to get back on schedule. What does that look like for us? So yeah, not, I mean, we have the date for sure, uh, but location and venue are all literally right now on the table. All right. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see how it goes in April for you. Speaking from an Olympic perspective, our big event, of course, is in August of next or July of next year, July and August of next year. Thank you very much again for indulging me. I really appreciate it. Now, let's try to remember a time where nobody knew what the word coronavirus meant or if it even <laughs> existed. <laughs> right. Uh, back to Salt Lake 2002. So why don't you tell me, Eric, what you were doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and just how you found your way to Salt Lake? So before uh, Salt Lake, I was doing contract work here in Los Angeles. Um, I moved out here for uh, a company called Pilata Teamworks, which Amy Murray and I had worked for, which produces uh, the AIDS rides and the um, uh, three-day breast cancer walks. Fascinating, amazing events um, and making money for nonprofit, which is great. Um, then um, became a contractor, did Latin Grammys, Grammys, some other um, interesting events. Um, one called Bavaria Fest. That's a fun one. Um, yeah, and here in, and here in America. Uh, and before that, I actually worked uh, in, for Up With People uh, based in Denver, Colorado for many years. Um, but what led me to this was... Amy Murray called and said, Hey, I, I know it's crazy, but there's this opening, um, at the Salt Lake Olympics. And we had, like I said, we had worked together for this company called Pilata Teamworks. And I was like, I don't know, like I live in LA now, which is crazy in itself, but I live in LA. Um, and, uh, but I had the interview and the interview was with Tanya Labuick and, I really honestly knew at that point, like, Ooh, I really want this job because no matter what, like the project manager, the, the manager of the, of the event is amazing. So I, I really want this job and I didn't really care what it, what it was either. Um, I just thought it was cool to work for the Olympics. And, uh, so, um, yeah, so Amy Murray was really the, the catalyst for, for getting me to interview. All right. Well, when when did this happen? Uh, was it late 2000, 2001? When was it that you actually made the move from Southern California up to? Yes, yeah, I was State? there. I I want to say a year. So I think a full calendar year um, before the Olympics or maybe 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 a little less. Um, but it was a, it was quite a bit of time. Um, so that would have been actually, you know, maybe a little bit less than a year, because I want to say like uh maybe March or April of, of 2001. Well, what were your first impressions, both of the committee and also Salt Lake city? You know, I, 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 I was that geek. I was so excited 
to work for the Olympics and in the event world, it's just kind of the pinnacle of events, right? So I, I, I was happy to do anything. Um, I was a little nervous. Like I, I lived in LA, had to sublet my place and, um, but I wanted to go, um, so badly. And, um, I got to Salt Lake City, had never been before, um, and didn't know a lot about it, did some research and was floored by the, the planning of the city, right, itself. And when I got my job with SLOC, oh, sorry, the, the organizing committee, uh, it was so interesting how much went into it. Like I knew it would be, but when I got there, I was like, holy moly. Uh, and my, um, my first impression was, um, wow, this is really organized. Like I was really impressed. I, I thought, um, they've got a, a good thing going. Um, I did quickly realize too, that look at the games, which was, which was my, my department, um, was the most, um, uh, malleable. And we like pivoted very quickly, uh, you know, uh, moving offices, moving locations. Um, we were very, um, hands-on, which I thought was cool too. So yeah, those are my first impressions. All right. Well, you mentioned you came into the look of the games department. What was your role there? Um, I, actually, I, I was afraid to go into that, to launch into that when you asked that first question. Um, I I honestly think I had the coolest job. Like everyone has a cool job. I really, But uh, I was project coordinator for Look at the Games. And I basically, when you break it down, I wrapped all of the city buses. I hung up all the street banners. And then the other cool thing that I did was... I worked with each of the host cities, um, Ogden, Kearns, Heber City, Provo, West Jordan, any, any, any city with a venue. I worked with the city itself and presented a kind of decor plan for each of those cities um, that, that the look of the games team fabricated. Um, and I worked with a designer, Michael Vanderlinen and, and Kathy Hunter, a dear friend to this very minute, um, to make each of those cities. Um, I keep, I always say, I always say I draped them in Olympic decor. That's what I say when, when people ask me what I did, but it's true. Like I, I made the cities look beautiful. Well, that you did. I actually, it makes me, I want to ask a follow-up question on that, which was, what was that like working with various cities, these, these various stakeholders, the municipalities around here? Was it challenging? Was it exciting? Did they have some interesting ideas that maybe ran counter to some of the policies? You know, oh, what was Christian. the, what was the, what was the process of working with all of these uh, various public stakeholders? What you just nailed it on the head right there. Like each one was very different. And I don't think I was prepared for a lot, but I wasn't prepared for that. Like, you know, you've got some very conservative cities and I won't name any names, but some who were like a little resistant, like, no, we're good. The venue's here and we're happy to have the venue here, but we're good. And I'm like, Ooh, but what about street banners? What about just on your town city hall or what, you know, what about across the street? And, and I'll, I will say this, all of them warmed up to something, um, but you definitely had different levels of excitement and wanting to be involved. And I, it was Kathy Hunter and I, and we would go meet with these towns and, and these city managers and, and actually multiple town halls um, to talk about this and kind of present, here's what we see our vision for your city. And 
they had their own ideas too, which I loved, honestly. And we would come back to our design team and say, hey, they like this idea, but could we tweak it and do A, B, or C? Um, and some did the bus wraps, some did street banners, some did all of it. Like some of the cities like, yes, this is great. You know, drape us in mountain shadow, fire and ice, you know, everything you want, you know. So it was very interesting to to work with each of those city city entities too. Well, it sounds to me like a, a, an incredibly complex uh, but interesting exercise. How long was that period? You know, how much time did you have before you really had to kind of nail down the design elements for the city? Because, you know, then you've got to actually go and design these things and then produce them and, and then install them. So, you know, what, how much lead time did you, did you need for the cities to make their final decision on their look so that everything downstream could happen? We actually knew, and I and I don't think this is being negative, I knew that the decor in the cities wasn't exactly the top worry, you know, like when it came to game time. So we knew that we had to get this organized pretty early. So, I mean, I, I we really hit the ground running as soon as I started and meeting with these cities to figure out, because we knew it because of city councils and, and all the um, hierarchy, <clears throat> it would take some time to decide. So I, I, I want to say six months, like it was a long enough time that they had some time to decide because then each of them would come back with their own ideas. We would help redesign, then represent, um, to their city councils. Um, and so I would say several months had gone by. And like you mentioned too, the install going from fabrication to install um, takes a little bit of time too, because you're working with city entities and have to be quote unquote on their schedule. Right. And some cities didn't want it up at all until the start of the new year. That was a big thing too, um, because they had their holiday decor or whatever it is. Um, And then we helped them with that. Like we helped them figure out, okay, so if your holiday decor is coming down at the same time, you could actually install these five elements um, to, into your city. So um, I think that was a, a joint effort with the cities and our teams too, for sure. Well, one thing that you mentioned there that was quite interesting is the the concept of priorities. So some things are absolutely critical and other things may not be perceived as mission critical. And sometimes those quote unquote non-mission critical items suffer because of lack of budget. So when it came to the budget for everything that you needed to do, any uh, particular challenges with related to budget or did you basically have all that settled? You, you had a, an amount of money allocated, you were comfortable with that and ready to move forward. We did have an amount of money allocated, but it did become a challenge managing because I think I think it was seven cities or eight cities. Um, and I, I will admit now, years later, that we did borrow from West Jordan to move over to Kearns, like depending on what the city wanted. Because if some city didn't want a lot, but I didn't want to get rid of that budget because I wanted to be able to use it somewhere else. So we used all of our budget for sure. And I think what I realized, we realized very quickly is that um, it goes by the budget. You go through your budget very quickly. And um, you're right. Some of the mission critical stuff that I thought was, oh, no, we really need that, didn't make it through. Um, what I did like, though, and I'm being serious when I say this, that Tanya LeBuick, every time Kathy and I would come to her to say, hey, 
we need to figure something out, there was always a solution. Um, that's also why I enjoyed working with Tanya so much. It wasn't always the one that I, solution that I wanted, um, but it was a solution that made the most sense, you know, in the bigger, in the bigger scheme of things. So for sure. Well, hopefully you haven't inadvertently touched off the next Olympic scandal. If anyone from West Jordan, if the mayor of West Jordan is listening and saying, we got shorted. How dare they take our funds from West Jordan to Kearns? But that's funny you say that because the only way, only time that I did that was when West Jordan might say, oh, no, we're good. And so they would decide I would. Yeah, I, I would never. God, can you imagine? Oof. That might yeah, <laughs> for sure in a scandal. That's my yeah. favorite one. That will be the butterfly that destroys Salt Lake's future Olympic <laughs> hopes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Well, okay. Back to the games. Yes. I, I sent you an email with some ideas, you know, thinking about stories and things like that. Interesting people that you may have worked with. You've already mentioned a few. Uh, some of the challenges that you may have faced, some really, really exciting or inspirational things uh, that you witnessed as you were preparing and or delivering the game. So why don't we go through some of the, the stories that you had in mind prior to our conversation today? Um, gosh, and I tried to narrow them down. There's so many, but... I think the mo the one that stands out to me the most is when look at the games moved uh, off site into a, to the warehouse. Um, it was just us, like it was just our team, and we were an island. And um, so many late nights and early mornings, and and just the dedication to making the look of these game of the of the Salt Lake games outstanding was amazing. And we had people from all walks of life that were part of this look of the games um, in, in many different facets, you know, uh, designers, project managers, fabricators. I really was amazed at, at how we came together as a team. And I, and I literally thank Tanya Lebiuk and I, I, this sounds like a commercial for, for her, but it's true. She was amazing. Cause we had, we had, we had, a, uh, we had a, uphill battle in some ways. Um, and that specifically that, that comment is one of my other memories. We got a call that, um, snow basin, um, had a bad storm. And so there were only a few of us available to be able to go help with that. Um, and, uh, some, some, some banners had ripped down and some, you know, so we had to go replace stuff like, and it was, you know, I look on my dashboard temperature and it was negative 17. I'm like, what am I doing here? Um, but it was stuff like that. And that's a memory, right? Like, I'll never forget driving to Snow Basin and looking Wasatch County, I think it is, negative uh, 17 on my dashboard just blew my mind. Um, but, and we're also the unsung heroes in a lot of ways because we fixed it. No one really knew. And it was all done. And we felt successful because we're like, yeah, it's back to where it, it was. Um, also, one of my stories is um, my roommate, Sherry uh, Pajic Weifinkel, was in charge of Olympic Medals Plaza, the entertainment there. Um, and so many fun stories of, of there. Like when I would get off my shift to go visit her and the backstage craziness there. Um, uh, I will say for sure, a shout out to H dog, Amy Hyatt. Um, she 
Amy Hyatt is such a workhorse that when 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 we were all tired, exhausted, and just like, I'm so done with this, she just had a big smile on her face and was like, we can do it. Let's, you know, and just that a little bit of positivity went 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 so far. Um, I mentioned to you before when we were chatting before recording that um something else inspirational and and meaningful for me is when I see the the logo of the Salt Lake Olympics, um, I, I literally have a little flutter in my heart. Like that, that specific mountain shadow color, the purple, the, the turquoise, the fire. And I, you know, it is really amazing what that does. And that's amazing because that brings back so many cool memories, um, of, of what happened. Um, I will mention one, uh, challenge I was responsible for, um, wrapping, I think it was 65 buses in Olympic um, every, I mean, imagery, but, um, and some of them had bobsledders, some had, you know, I, skiers. Well, um, I was not that smart and uh, we designed one of them uh, on one of the buses where half the body wrapped on top. And so we had to come up with a very quick solution um, and, uh, made it happen, but it was a harrowing, like people were coming to get on the bus and I've, I've got a bus with half, like someone's leg on the, on the side of the bus. So, um, little things like that were, were amazing. What we were able to accomplish. Uh, I just felt like I just had story time with Eric, uh, <laughs> brought to you by Tanya Labuick. So I appreciate right. her being our sponsor. Um, <laughs> I love these, I love these stories, but I have to come back on a, on on a couple elements during games time, did you have a home base or were you just kind of running around all over all the venues all the time, fixing problems or making sure that everything was fine? Where, where was quote unquote home for you during games time? And what was a day in the life of Eric long like during the games themselves? Uh, that is a great question because when you say home base, when I think about it, I, we really did like we were on the go every day of the games. And what I mean by that is we were the lack of a better word by that, by that point, the IOC has, has come through. NBC has come through, has approved all of our imagery, small fix here, small fix there. So we're like, yeah, we're done. This is great. But then our job is to make sure it keeps that way for the entire time of the games. Um, and as I mentioned, there was some weather that we had to deal with, but yes, we were a, um, we were the fix it team, uh, and making sure that everything stayed and looked beautiful. And I mean, I, I know for a fact that at least each day I had, you know, a couple banners down, a couple buses to fix or whatever it was each day. Um, but I will say this, we worked our hoo-hahs off before the games and I felt like during the games, because it was in operation, that we actually had almost, almost normal hours, like when the games were operating. And I know it was kind of opposite for a lot of people because they're operating the games. Um, so I was happy to be the, yep, got it. Take care of it. Yep, got it. We'll take care of it. Okay, got going, going to Heber City. Great. You know, I, I, we were happy to do that because we were in that spot. And not all of the look of the games did that because each of our team was responsible for a different venue. My small sub team were the ones that, that were the fix it team, you know, for each of the cities too. So. 
So you got to get around during games time then. I did. I, 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 it was crazy. I went to, I think I checked it off. I went to every single venue, like every single venue and city at some point during which, and no, not many people can say that. And uh, what about Paralympic games? Oh, I've never been so, I'll be honest with you. I didn't have a lot of experience before this, um, before the Salt Lake um, Paralympics and didn't know what to expect. I, it just blew me away. I was so happy that we thought about it beforehand and were able to use transitionally uh, some of our signage and and be able to have a, a duplicate right away to put up um and obviously that budget was much smaller um and we made a lot of things work and then just to see how that came together so quickly after because you're just exhausted like you're just like done and then you've you know hey guys we're on it like paralympic time and and that was pretty cool to see that we all rallied um, to be able to to do the the Paralympic stuff too, and then just watching the games back—that's where I do get a, a little another little flutter in my heart when I see any of the imagery on TV, or you know, when I see that mountain shadow, or I see the kiss and cry from you know the um, uh, uh, figure skating. All of that really brings back such great memories. So, well, it does the same for me too. Just the other day, my wife and I went for a drive. And we actually, you know, we're going to see the leaves and we drove past Snow Basin and you can still see look elements, you know, uh, throughout the state of Utah. And it's awesome to see here two decades later that the memory of the games endures, not just in our minds, but actually there are physical representations of that memory. And I appreciate you contributing to all of that. Now, I do have to ask, you know, the, the games end, the Olympic games end, the Paralympic games end. and I understand from our conversation that Salt Lake was one stop among uh, a very long journey for you in your career. But uh, what did you do after the games were over? And what did you learn during your experience in Salt Lake that you have been able to take with you as you've gone uh, on to different assignments throughout your career? Well, that's such a packed question. Okay. So, uh, and I have so many answers. What I did when I, I first finished, I can't, I'm going to admit this on a podcast. Uh, when I came back to Los Angeles, um, I didn't, I didn't have a job and needed a job really bad. So I became the yellow M&M at the Orange County Children's Museum, as you do. Um, I also became the Mountain Dew Code Red guy, handing out Mountain Dew sodas, um, samples, um, but no, that was very short lived, but it, that's the truth. Um, I then got a job with Universal Studios and special events. And what I took from the Olympics was, was the effective working on a team, which I don't know that many people who really have experienced that, um, where, where my input was valued. Um, I'm the, I'm the louder guy in the room. I also learned. Um, through great uh, team management that I don't have to talk all the time that someone else can, you know, um, speak up and probably will have the same thing to say. Um, I will also say that a global perspective, that sounds a little cheesy coming from the Olympics, but it's, it's uh, honestly, it's the truth. I was working on a team of people from all over the country uh, at the Olympics and 
that really gave me perspective of of what uh, what we're looking at events wise. And I think that's even now, like you said, two decades later with the Academy of Country Music, same thing. I've you know I'm, I'm dealing with um, predominantly Nashville, but people from all over the country. Um, and I think that that global perspective um, has helped me out immensely. I will also say the design element, which I didn't have very much experience with going into the Olympics, has helped me quite a bit in marketing and, and uh, um, you know, the PR part of it um, and communications, too. So a lot. Huh. Well, I really like the very colorful beginning to that response. I was a yellow M&M in Orange County. <laughs> then I became the Mountain Dew Code Red guy. So uh, <laughs> I didn't think about that. That's true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We've got all the colors there. of the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, this conversation has been very, very enjoyable. But before we get to our final segment and ask about music and food and all that kind of stuff, I want to make sure that we've got everything on your list. You you told me that basically you've got stories for days. You have so many stories and it was hard to whittle them down. I want to give you an opportunity to make sure that you've got any stories that you want to share that you won't later regret. Oh, I should have said that. Uh, let's get them on the podcast. What else have you, what else, if anything, do you have, Eric? Just one other one. I worked with um, Kathy Hunter and uh, she's from Park City. And uh, Kathy and I, well, mainly Kathy, had to go meet with um, some big wigs in the Joseph Smith building because part of, um, I was a very small part of this team, but we did the graphic imagery on the buildings. It was mainly Kathy. Um, and one of them was on the Joseph Smith building, if you remember, the figure skater. And I just remember her stories of, of, I want to be as sensitive as possible. The challenges that she came up against as a woman, um, uh, uh, working with and trying to put that graphic imagery on the Joseph Smith building and, and the triumph that she felt that we all felt when, when we were able to get that crown jewel. And like I said, it wasn't just Kathy or me, it was a whole team of people that was able to get that, um, was just an amazing feeling because if you remember there were multiple buildings downtown all lit up and all draped with graphic imagery and that was kind of the crown jewel and everyone was terrified including kathy but she did a phenomenal job um and was able to you know put that figure skater on the joseph smith building so yeah amazing Well, Eric, this has been a joy. I've really had a, a great time getting to know you and hearing all of these wonderful stories. And so we'll go ahead and wrap it up with our final segment. And we'll start it out with the music question. And before we hit the record button on our podcast, you mentioned that you had a bit of a challenge trying to think about this. So I'm really eager to hear what you have to say for music. So I really honestly thought about this a million times. And Brian Saunders on the Look at the Games team actually even provided a CD. But, but as I thought more and more about it, I was, I was very lucky. I was able to go to uh, the Olympic Medals Plaza when one of my favorite artists, Martina McBride, a country artist, was on the stage. And she sang a couple of her songs. So believe it or not, that's what rings... When I think of a song, I will also freely admit, I'm a little embarrassed, but um, Amy, Murray, and Sherry and I were also able to see NSYNC 
on Olympic Medals Plaza. Um, so the Bye 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 song, literally from NSYNC, believe it or not, makes me think of, of Games Time and Olympic Medals Plaza. So those are my songs. What I was saying to you earlier is that I don't really have that much of a song, but the color Mountain Shadow, my friends make fun of me because I now can see that color a lot more and I'll mention it a lot more. That was kind of our key, you know, part of our key art that we had. So the color reminds me even more so than a song or artist. So it's kind of crazy that like that. All right. Well, a tribute to Mountain Shadow. I, I actually want to ask a question <laughs> about that, but I don't want to spoil anything for later on. So I'll keep it to myself. But Martina McBride, happy to put Martina on the playlist. Is there a particular song that you want on there or can I choose from her discography? Uh, to be honest with you, you can, I mean, she's, you can choose. Like, it, all right, she's I will make so a choice. Many. Yeah, so many. And uh, all of our listeners will be happy to know that you are the person responsible for getting Bye 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 from NSYNC <laughs> onto the playlist. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that that is definitely for for Sherry and Amy. Yeah, for Sherry and Amy and I. That's funny. All right, excellent. Now let's talk about food. Did you have a particular restaurant that you like to frequent when you were okay. working there for a year? So when you when I when you saw when I saw that question, Kathy Hunter took me to a and I can't remember the name of it. I even tried to look it up, but it was on the main street in Park City because one of my one of the. Uh, cities that I worked with was Park City and Kathy had been on the arts council there. So she took me to that restaurant and I know that I went back two or three times because it was so amazing. I wish I remember the name, um, but it was just a, an amazing view, um, uh, great food, great entertainment, like uh, someone playing live music in the background. So um, that's what first came to mind for sure. I, I will say when you mentioned favorite restaurant, um, Two was the the rules and regulations of of having alcohol at a restaurant in Salt Lake is what came to mind too. Like when I would try to order a drink for someone else, oh, they have to order their own, or you can only have one shot at a time, or some of those rules. That, that's what uh, that's what came to mind too. But I I actually had some amazing international food um, in downtown Salt Lake City too because of how diverse uh, Salt Lake is. Um, and, uh, I mean, everything from Thai, Pad Thai to, I had a, um, oh gosh, Mongolian barbecue, um, was great too. So, uh, I have so many, so many great memories, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The food scene here in Salt Lake, most people wouldn't think of Salt Lake as really being a, a destination for international food, but because of the, the church, you know, the LDS church and their missionaries going all over the globe. They bring these foods back with them that they like. Uh, my my son spent some time in Ethiopia, and there's an Ethiopian restaurant here in Salt Lake. It's fantastic. It's delicious, and um, it's quickly become his and one of my favorite places to eat. So you can find all kinds of food here in Salt Lake City. So I appreciate you uh, mentioning that very much. And if any of your colleagues or other listeners know what the restaurant was in Park City that you went to, let me know. And I'll throw it on our map on the website. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I was. I think I was the most surprised by the how diverse Salt Lake was, and and specifically about the food. Like like you said, I was able to find a, any amazing kind of food in Salt Lake City. So yeah. Well, hopefully, when all of this COVID craziness uh, subsides, we'll be able to go to these restaurants again and again. enjoy ourselves <laughs> and and uh, and try out some of these international culinary delights. All right. Now I feel like I'm uh, 
working for Chopped or Food Network or something. <laughs> <laughs> Open the basket, Ted, and see what we've got. Uh, and speaking of our basket of memories, we've emptied out most of that basket, but I know we've got at least one left. So why don't you take us to your goosebump moment? So we, our team, like I mentioned, was responsible for this look and um, the lighting and the banners and and the whatever. And it was, I think it was too, if, if it was the day before the opening ceremonies or maybe even two, where it was like, okay, people, the NBC team is going to fly, do their flyover and our everything has to be perfect. Like we don't really have a choice and we can't. Um, and when, when, when we were downtown and we looked up and they lit up the rings on the Hill for the first time. And I made the first time that I saw that maybe it was before. Um, that was a, a, for sure, a goosebump moment for me. Um, just realizing all, all of the banners we had worked on, the cityscape was done. The, then they light the rings and it really was like, wow, this really does make an impact on people's experience. Um, and I think that was a, a big moment for me, for sure. Well, I echo that sentiment. And I mentioned it on the very first podcast that we did that for me, perhaps my goosebump moment was just very early in the morning. Maybe it's five o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning as I'm driving to the office or driving to a venue during games time, and I'm looking on that mountain from I-15, I'm looking at, I'm looking east, and I see those rings above the University of Utah on the side of the mountain, sometimes shrouded in clouds. Totally. Uh, it was absolutely, absolutely beautiful. I do have a follow-up question, though, and I have to yeah. go back to Mountain Shadow, because you've, you've mentioned Mountain Shadow a couple of times. How did this color get the name Mountain Shadow? Do you know? I mean... Now, what was it about Mountain Shadow that ended up becoming so iconic for the games in Salt Lake? Um, interesting you should say that. I, I didn't know. I, this sounds funny. I didn't really know. I knew the name and I knew the names of these other of the other key art colors. But I, when you literally see the sunset in Salt Lake and I, it blew my mind, you see the whites of the mountains and then you literally see this mountain shadow, purpley, bluey color that that the sky and and a little bit of cloud make on the mountain. And I was like, oh, okay, I got you. That's where that comes from. And I think that was actually in Heber City, or no, no, uh, I maybe even Snow Basin, where there's, you know, a very defined mountain, you know, and you see that white cap. And then the rest of the mountain. But um, as far as I know, it's a Pantone color, but I don't know if it was called Mountain Shadow or we named or we named it um, that Mountain Shadow, but that we were made sure to know that that wasn't purple. It wasn't blue. It was Mountain Shadow. Well, we now have one of the great unsolved mysteries of the game. So <laughs> listeners come out here and you know let us know what what's the actual origin of this yes. name, uh, Mountain Shadow. And Eric, uh, this has been an absolute, absolute joy having you on. I've loved these stories. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing with the Academy of Country Music, or they want to reconnect with you and share memories of Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm on Facebook. I think that's probably the easiest. Um, 
And uh, I, and I, I would think that most people listening to this podcast um, know Tanya LeBuick or Amy Murray, um, and they can get in contact with me too. So happy to reconnect. Yeah, for sure. Eric, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Eric, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.